0: Welcome to the James series. This is a series of videos that's going to be going through the book of James verse by verse. Join me in this analysis of the book to get to the depths of what James is trying to tell us, keeping in mind the cultural context, who James is and his objective with this book. I encourage you to join me every week for the next few weeks as we go through every chapter. One of the first things we need to understand about the book of James and its objective is that the book of James is a book that's been written to us in order to combat heresy. In fact, more specifically, the heresies that came in because of those who twisted the writings of Paul, the apostle, or misunderstood what he was saying. We also see this heresy going around as it's been hinted by Peter, who writes in 2 Peter 3:16, There are some things in Paul's writings that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. You therefore, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away by the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. So we see that the heresy is something that leads people to work lawlessness. People were reading Paul's letters thinking, wow, I'm saved by faith. What a wonderful thing this is, and truly it is. I I believe in the Messiah, and that's what saves me. But then what started happening, something that's also happening right now all over the world, is people started thinking that just because they're saved by faith, that their works don't matter and that they can live lawless lives while saying they've sworn allegiance to the law keeper of law keepers, who is Yeshua the Messiah, Jesus. He kept the law perfectly. But I want to submit to you that he did not walk out righteousness so that we can walk in unrighteousness, he walked in perfect liberty and obedience so that we can walk in perfect liberty and obedience as well. And so I want to submit that if you've been a recipient of teaching that we're twisting Paul's writings, then you're going to find this series I'm about to do very uncomfortable because James makes people uncomfortable who believes lies about what Paul was really trying to say. The author of the book of James is traditionally believed to be James, the half brother of Yeshua, the one who grew up with the Messiah. And that's quite profound because it means that he's going to be speaking from a perspective as the half brother, and he's probably going to have the same outlook on what is most important as Yeshua had being so close knit with Yeshua himself. Now, the audience of who James is making this book out to is those who many scholars believed were just fleeing out of Jerusalem. They were dispersed from Jerusalem because of the persecution that came from Herod. And this places the book of James around the timeline of Acts chapter 12 where it says about that time Herod, the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Therefore, James is writing to those who are dispersed and who are facing great trial. And we know that in trial it is hard to love enemies and it's hard to remain steadfast and obedient to your allegiance to God. And that's what he is going to be encouraging us in. Now, let's begin in James Chapter one, verse two. And he says this counted all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, James starts out his book with a very strange statement. And he says, be happy, it joy when you face trials. And it's like, what? You know, the world's perspective on trial is absolutely the opposite of the biblical perspective, because James says, there's actually something good that comes from you going through hardship and going through trial, and he says that the purpose of it is that you're being tested, and at the end of this, if you can persevere this trial, there is something called steadfastness. Steadfastness and what is steadfastness? He says let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. When you face a trial immediately, you need to recognize I'm being tested like an exam that you wrote in school. You are now writing an exam with God the moment that you face trial. And God is looking, how will you respond to trial? And if you pass the test, it is going to produce character in you. It is going to produce hope in you. It's going to produce humility in you. It is going to make you stronger in your faith and you're going to know who your God is more, how will you know that your God is a deliverer if you haven't seen him deliver? How are you going to know that your God is the one who sets the captives free if you haven't seen him do that for you? And so that's why trial is a blessing, because now it teaches us to be more like Yeshua. And that is ultimately our purpose, to be like Jesus, right? So if a trial is going to help us to be more like Jesus, isn't that something that we should enter with joy? He then goes and says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, not with doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's double minded, unstable in all his ways. Now, uh, interesting how how hard he is speaking. And we also see Yeshua himself speaking quite hard on lack of faith. You know, when the disciples struggle to cast out the demon, He rebuked them, saying, How long must I bear with you? Why don't you have faith? Why don't you believe? Right. And in the same way, now, James is echoing the same thought of when you are asking God for something, don't ask double mindedly, but ask in faith, knowing what you're asking for, knowing what that God desires to meet your faith. Because remember, Yeshua said, ask for this mountain to be moved and it will move if you ask in faith. But notice what he makes the example of. He says specifically, if you ask for wisdom and he says, if you lack wisdom ask God and God will give it to you. Now, this is a very profound thing. I don't know if any of you feel like you lack wisdom because I remember when I was a young boy, you know, uh, primary school, going through high school, you know, I remember looking around and looking at my peers and they had many strengths and, and they were good at many things. And I wasn't I couldn't find anything that I was good at and all. And I also knew that, you know, I, I, of myself, like I wasn't wise. And so all I did was could, I remember I asked God, give me wisdom. So every day when I walked into the school courtyard, I'd be like, God, give me wisdom today. God, give me wisdom. Lord, I want to just have wisdom so I can be used by you every, every, every day. I pray that. And the father, if you pray, if you ask him for wisdom, he's going to give you wisdom and you need wisdom from him. You need wisdom from above because the wisdom of this world and of this earth will fail you. But the wisdom of God, the gift of wisdom that he desires to give you is going to take you through this life, open doors for you and is going to give you the wisdom to prosper and be blessed so that you're not making the wrong decisions so that you don't go through the wrong doors, but that you're guided by his spirit, the giver of wisdom. Let's read on what James writes in verse nine Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. He's first talking about the lowly one. And when he speaks of the lowly one, he's speaking about a man who is humble. He's speaking about a man who who is like the you know, when you think about the Pharisee and the tax collector, the tax collector, whose father I'm not even worthy to lift up my my eyes to heaven. Forgive me a sinner. And God has mercy on that lowly, that humble man. We are all like that tax collector. At least we ought to be uh, recognizing our own depravity and recognizing that he is the one who can forgive us and set us right. But then you have the man who who trusts in his riches, who trusts in himself and see to be rich, to be very wealthy in this world in of itself is not condemnation, but it does introduce a risk that because of all of the distraction and and rolling in of riches, that can cause you to lose sight of your faith and lose sight of the Messiah, lose sight of the kingdom, lose sight of what he has called you to. But it is absolutely possible to be rich in this world, but still use what God has gifted you for his kingdom. Because remember what what Yeshua spoke regarding a rich man. He said again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle Than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. However, remember what he said thereafter. He said when the disciples asked, well, is it possible? Then it's impossible with man, but it's possible with God. In other words, the man who has wealth, who trusts in God to save him, who trusts in God to guide him, who trusts in God and who is obedient to God with his riches, that man can use his riches to build a kingdom and to be an asset for the kingdom of God. Now, the rich man that's being talked about now, who it says that he fades away in the midst of his pursuits. Now, that means that he's fading away from the Messiah. Think about that. He's he's not the the Bible doesn't say that he's he's cut off just because he's rich. No, it says that he's fading away because of his pursuits. So in other words, a rich man is exposed to the possibility of having pursuits that can cause him to fade away from the Messiah, But it doesn't have to. And that's, I think, a key thing to understand here is that when you see your pursuits. And by the way, you and, and if we're if you're a Western person in the Western world, there are many pursuits. There are many distractions. We should guard ourselves against them. He then says in verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. We see that the trial is now being contrasted with having your life perfect. Because the rich man who does not have a life of trial but just a life of pursuits and riches, how is he going to be purified into steadfastness? How is his character going to be made as to imitate the Messiah? That is what is being contrasted here. So that's why when we love him, he will allow trial to come on our life because he wants to protect us from the distractions of this life and from being molded more into this world instead of molded into his character. You will see that the contrast between the rich man and the lowly man is going to be a recurring theme in the book of James. So we're going to revisit this when we get to it later again. Now let's read further in verse 13. death. Now, James makes an interesting statement regarding temptation, and he says that we shouldn't say that God is tempting us because God does not tempt us and he cannot be tempted by evil. But now a question that I have to ask is why then do we pray in the Lord's Prayer? Father, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Why do we pray that God should not lead us into temptation if James tells us that God is not going to tempt us? Right? So, God doesn't himself tempt anyone with sin, but he can allow us to enter into a place of temptation. An example of this is when Yeshua. When Jesus was led into temptation, it says in Matthew four verse one, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So we have the Holy Spirit leading Yeshua into a temptation, a face off with the devil. That's interesting. You know what? Why would He do that? Again, it's to test us. It is like when Yeshua was faced with the devil, he was being tested. The devil asked him, I will offer you this world, all these kingdoms, if you bow down to me. And Yeshua had to reject the devil, and then the devil fled. In the same way, Adam and Eve, when they were in the garden, the tree was placed there by God. God allowed them to be tempted by the promises of the serpent who say that if you eat of this tree you will become like God and Adam and Eve of course failed the test and death came in when Yeshua passed the test in the wilderness life came in through his victory over Satan and so when we are faced now by the temptations that the devil brings We have to reject his temptations and then life can come into our life because we have rather accepted the Messiah. And now we can become a spring of life. And I want to give you this tool that the Lord gave us all in fighting our temptations. If you feel like there's a temptation, that you're facing something that a sin, something that the devil is coming to you with and you're really struggling to fight that you're struggling. Do what the Messiah told you to do, to pray in this manner. Father, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And in praying that prayer, I in my own life personally have found great deliverance, great empowerment from my father by asking him in the way that Christ told me to ask him. For deliverance from those temptations. So use the Lord's Prayer specifically every day in your life to be free from your temptations. Now let's read further James 1:16. And he now speaks about God's thoughts about you. And he says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change of his own, he will bring us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, there's two things I want you to see here that's really amazing. It says that every good gift is from your father who is in heaven. In other words, whenever there's something in this life that you get to see oh, this is a blessing and I can enjoy this, that is a gift from God, everything that is good is a gift from him. So that means that the very gift of life, the fact that you can breathe and 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 live and, and and partake in life's blessings of life, that in of itself is a testament of God's enduring love for you. The fact that you are breathing is the gift of life that he the breath is that is what he's putting in your lungs right now. Every breath that you take and I take right now, breathing in and out, that is the father giving me that life. The like the father, the moment that he stops giving me life, I'm dead. Like every second of me breathing is him. And so remember that because it means that he's blessing you. It means that he is he loves you. It means that he wants you to live and not just now. He wants you to live forever. This life is here for you to discover him, for you to discover his blessings, discover his eternal life so you can take a hold of the son and live forever. And then the second thing I want you to see is that he says of his own. He brought us forth by the word of truth. Remember, in the book of Genesis, when he created mankind, he says it is good. So that means that by the word of God of saying it is good, you were created and you love. That means that as he has brought you forth, it is good. And that that his love for you as, as stating you to be the first fruits of his creatures, is manifested by that. That means that your value is not based of what someone, what mom or dad thinks, or what some uh, boss or employer thinks, or what what your teacher at school thinks. People can come and go through our life and tell us things that are unprofitable and are lies, and we should never get our identity, our value. In the words of people, we get our identity and our value in the words of our God. And he says by his word of truth, he's brought us forth. And if he has brought us forth by his words, is that not what determines your value? Is the fact that he made you that he he being the creator of heaven and earth, he did not need me and I'm a speck. I am. You know, who am I compared to his majestic majesty? And yet he thought to make me. He thought to come to earth and to the form of a man to die for me so that he can be raised and so that I can be raised. That is what determines my value, because he paid for my life with his. That means that. I cannot afford to disregard that and rather listen to men. And so therefore, love as one who's been bought with a price, love as one who has a calling of God, love as the one who is receiving the breath of life as I speak, love for his kingdom and his glory do not live for yourself. Do not live for men in this world. Do not live by the words of men, live by the word of God, the word of truth. Let's read further. Now, what God wants from us? James one verse 19. Now, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak and slow to anger for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, this is interesting because he's giving us a very powerful instruction. See, for us to be slow to hear, that means that you take your time. You really listen when someone is speaking to you, no matter who they are, whether they're the president of a country or whether they're a homeless man on the street, it doesn't matter you take your time listening to what they have to say and you are slow to say something back. I mean, that's just wisdom. It's it's you you sitting there and you're you're letting God. You're saying, God, help me understand and respond in your words. God is telling us move slowly because the flesh wants to just be like, boom, 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 quickly recklessly, without much thought, speaking by assumption. And so we are a people who are we're going to be like the Messiah who spoke carefully, but like with a sword His the Holy Spirit. When he speaks through us, he speaks like a sword to the hearts of men. I'm not talking about condemning men. I'm not talking. I'm talking about letting your words be seasoned with salt and love and compassion and kindness, yet truth then that can penetrate to the heart of a man, even being able to convict them of sin, righteousness and judgment by the Holy Spirit. And then he says, therefore, put away all fullness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. He's telling us to receive with humility, with meekness, the implanted word. In other words, Don't just go to read the word of God or listen to the word of God for you to take it to other people and be like, well, did you you see what it says here? Why aren't you doing this? He says, first and foremost, receive the word with humility. That means you receive the word for yourself. You read the Bible for yourself to change you so that you can be a vessel of change, so you can be a a picture of the Messiah, so that you can, when people look at you, be a witness and a testimony of his good fruits and work in you. And then he says in verse 22, but be doers of the word, not hearers, only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once he forgets what he was like. Right. So he says a few things here. First, he says, be a doer, not a hearer only. So we're starting to see that James is now starting to go after the heresies that were that he was seeing in the churches propping up its head. The heresy of being a hearer only of the word of a proclaimer of faith, but not a doer. And notice that he says that if you're a hearer only, and not a doer that you're going to deceive yourself. Notice that he he doesn't say you're going to deceive others because, of course, no one you're not going to deceive anyone. You're not going to fool anyone if you hear and hear and hear and say you believe, but you don't actually do what you believe. People can easily spot hypocrisy even in this world. But he says what's going to happen is you're going to deceive yourself. And that's even worse, perhaps, because You don't even yourself know how deceived you are. Everyone else can see you're deceived, but you yourself don't. It's one of the greatest forms of self-deception to walk in hypocrisy. No one is fooled. God isn't fooled, but you are. And now, if you think about how hypocrisy blinds us to see it within ourselves, this should really rock us to look and be like, how God can I live a life? That's not just a, 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 a believer. That's a hearer, but a, a believer that's a doer. And so James goes on and he says in verse 25, the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being not a hero who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Now, this is how he's starting to tell us how to be a doer. He says, you have to look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and then do that. And he says, then you will be blessed because of that. Now, we have to first understand that he is saying the only way that you can be a doer is if you do the right thing, that is to look to the right thing. The perfect law, the law of liberty. Now, what is the law of liberty? This is key here. What is this perfect law? He's telling us to look into. Now, men have come and many have had many uh, theories and uh, assumptions about what James is saying. But we don't have to assume anything. It is very clear because the Bible has to define the Bible. James, when he is saying the law of liberty, when he is saying the perfect law, he is he's dwelt with the Messiah. He is visiting his synagogue every Sabbath. He is like everyone else well versed in the Torah and the prophets, what they had as the Bible. Because remember, the book of James was not compiled into what we have as the Bible today. It was simply a letter. But the scripture that he had was what defined words, knowing that the people that he is writing to these are people who are going to synagogues. How do I know that? Because James two verse two. He says if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your synagogue. Right. So he's talking to whoever he's writing this letter to. He says when a man comes into your synagogue, they do this, this, this and that. So we can see that these people are going to synagogues because James is speaking to them as if they are. So, what do they who are in synagogues do? When you're going to a synagogue in the first century, the Torah is opened and they read from it. Now, what is the Torah? What is the Torah and the prophets? That is the Old Testament, as we know today. What does that say about what the perfect law, the law of liberty, is? Psalm 19, verse 7 The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. His testimony is sure, making wise to simple. His precepts are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. So we have our first hint where the psalmist writes that the law of God is defined as being perfect. Now let's read in Psalm 119, verse 44 about what the law of liberty is. So shall I keep thy law continually forever and ever. And I will walk at liberty for I seek your precepts. All right. So we have it defined for us to walk in liberty, according to the psalmist, is to seek the law of God, the precepts of God. For us to walk in what is called perfect, we have to obey the law of God. And this is kind of obvious because what is slavery? Slavery is to be in bondage to sin. And what is sin? Sin is lawlessness. According to one John three, verse four, sin is the transgression of the law. So therefore, if you want to be in bondage, break the law, live in lawlessness. If you want to be in liberty, freedom, obey the precepts be lawful in your living. So quite simple, but yet something that many people struggle to understand. Some have said that the law of liberty is simply the righteousness in Christ that we receive apart from works. Now, yes, we have a righteousness that comes from what Christ what Jesus did for us on the cross and that is apart from our works our works what i do does not save me it does not contribute to saving me like making me clean so i can be before god saved no my works don't do that his works do that his salvation does that amen however to be a hearer and a doer means that I hear of the faith, I believe, and I then have evidence of that faith in what I do. And that's why James is encouraging us to not just be a hearer, but then live in lawlessness, but be someone who obeys the law of liberty and be, as he specifically said, not just to see Many uh, define the law of liberty as Christ's righteousness that we believe in him and we're saved. But that's that's a faith that is hearing and believing. James defined the law of liberty as something that we need to do, not just believe in, not just not just have faith in, but do to be a doer of the word of the law of liberty. Remember, in this first chapter of James, he is not talking to us about how can we be saved? He is talking to us about how we cannot be hypocrites in our salvation, how we can be believers, but walk out our faith. That's why he said that the one who is not a hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. James 1 25. See, he doesn't say he will be saved. He's not trying to tell us how to be saved. He's saying that's how you're going to be blessed, because remember that Matthew five, uh, our Messiah Yeshua, He also came and He told us that the one who obeys the law of God, who does the law of God, He will be greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and whoever teaches the law of God is abolished, will be at least in the kingdom of heaven. So again. He's talking about blessing. It's not just in this world, but in the kingdom to come in accordance to whether we were a doer who had evidence of our faith. So I want to submit to you that as we go along in this series in James Chapter two, 14 and onwards, we're going to be seeing more about James talking about the relationship between faith and work. So please stay tuned. Continue with me in this series as we go through this and your understanding of the relationship between faith and works will deepen. Now, I want to conclude this study of this first chapter with verse 26. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Wow. That's a powerful word that James is giving us in this conclusion of chapter one. And he says you need to be able to bridle your tongue. Be careful of what comes out of your mouth. Be careful. Be slow to speak. See what he told us in the beginning. He's telling us again: be slow to speak bridle your tongue because if you aren't able to bridle it, you deceive your own heart, thinking that you're all right, thinking that that everything is fine. While in reality, he says your religion is worthless. Everything that you th- that you are, feel like you may be passionate about, you like going to church, you like to to talk about your theology. But if you can't bridle your tongue, if you can't be slow to speak, quick to hear, slow to anger, ultimately, religion means nothing. So let's let's really think about how we speak to our children, how we speak to our spouses, because otherwise nothing else matters. If we don't have that love that humility to bridle our tongue with. And then pure religion. If you really want to be a good man or woman of God, he says to be pure undefiled in your religion. Visit the orphan, visit the widow. And keep yourself unstained from the world. In other words, obey the law of liberty, which defines what God's good and perfect law and will is for us. His instruction, the way he wants you to live. And uh, not the way of the world. His way. The way that Yeshua, the way that Jesus lived. I want to walk like Jesus. I want to live like Jesus. The one who says he abides in him or to walk as he walked. 1 John two six. So... If I say I love him, I believe in him. I want I should or to want to walk like he walked. And how did he walk? He obeyed the instructions of his father who is in heaven, who is my father, who is in heaven, whom I love and whom I want to obey. And so this is how James introduces the book and sets us up for the rest of the following chapters that is to come. Join me next week for chapter two, where we're going to be talking about treating people differently based off worldly prejudices and also divisions between believers that James was identifying in his day and calling out. He also is going to be teaching us from the book of Leviticus. And you probably wouldn't even realize that unless you looked for it. And he's going to talk to us about having a love at the forefront of our obedience the instructions of our father i want to say a special thank you to all of my partners who have made this teaching possible thank you and we can't wait to see you guys in the next one blessings and shalom.